this particular uh, message uh, is very close to my heart, and I sort of want to walk through what it is about this idea of God as a father that is so important to me, and then I would like to walk through what's in these notes. So for now, you could even set down the notes, and I, I just sort of want to lay a, a foundation for you in the importance of this in, if I just say my life, it makes it sound like it's a unique importance to me, but then I would like to make an appeal to you to understand the significance of this theme scripturally and in our individual lives. And it's, now I think most of us understand the social reasons why the issue of fatherhood and God being associated with it creates problems. Because many of us have experienced family situations. It's funny because here we are supposedly the mark of health on planet Earth. Isn't the church supposed to be the mark of health on planet Earth? This is what it's supposed to be like. But you gather a whole bunch of Christians together and it's ironic how we can all identify with the breakdown of family. And we all come from various backgrounds, some more healthy than others. But as a whole, the church today is not necessarily more healthy than the culture, but we happen to be, hopefully, we're on the mend, and we are going to be showcasing something more healthy than the culture, whether it's right now, hopefully, in the near future. I, of course, would love to see the church in a vibrant state of health where we can actually be the ones rescuing others who are debilitated by the breakdown of family, but we have a tendency to be the ones in need of the help. Uh, so, you know, there's a process of development that we need to go through in the church. But it starts with a vision for what it is supposed to be. One of the things, you know, when Leslie and I have dealt with the topic of sexuality and relationships, what we're dealing with is we're dealing with a temple pattern. Let me give you a, 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 an idea of what I mean by that. In the Old Testament, there is a pattern laid out. God on Sinai gives Moses a pattern for a tabernacle, for a temple, basically, for a dwelling place for his name. And so in this process of Moses having this revelation of this perfect pattern, he says, build it in accordance with the pattern as revealed on the mount. And so we have this idea in Scripture of this pattern being laid out for a temple or a dwelling place for God. In the New Testament, we understand that the temple that Jesus refers to when he says, when you tear down this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. Which he's talking, but it says, but the temple of which he referred was his body. So God himself comes to this earth and says, oh, by the way, you know that temple in the Old Testament? I'm now linking that with the human body, or specifically, Christ's body. Now, in the New Testament, we also understand that we, the believers in Christ, become his body. And his body is actually the dwelling place of the presence or the spirit of God. So, we can take, by logical connection, the fact that there's a pattern that is set out for how this temple or this body is supposed to be built. In other words, there is a proper way, there is measurements for it, there are, you know, squareness to it, of how this Christian life is supposed to look. There is a pattern for it. Now, all of us have unique personalities, but all of us are supposed to showcase the same Jesus. 
Jesus doesn't look different in Zimbabwe than he should look in America, just because we have a different twang to our voice, or we have different cultural norms. Jesus is Jesus, and he transcends culture, and he behaves the same no matter which culture he's in. It doesn't mean he violates certain cultural norms that are not biblical in their nature. Like one of the key questions could be, well, if you're in Japan and you like the meal, technically you should burp. Well, do you know that in America, if you did that, it's considered rude and actually a violation. Oh, hey, buddy. Welcome. Come on in. You going to sit up front? You're going to try and take daddy's notes? I have to be careful where I set my notes. Uh, take those. <clears throat> I was saying something very important. Uh, there's very few things that can distract me when I'm uh, speaking, but uh, my kids, as you guys notice, have a, have a way of doing that to me. Uh <clears throat> so does anyone know where I was? The dot, dot, dot. It's a violation of. What was I talking about? Oh, <laughs> I was on a very important point there. Okay, so when you talk about heavenly decorum, if we were going to talk about, when I've used the term honor, honor is the behavior of heaven. Heaven has a pattern for how it behaves. In other words, the seraphim, the angelic host, the cherubim, there's a way in which they interact with God. There's a way in which they behave in the holy of holies. And there are certain things that we can know without a lot of thought and without some clear scripture on saying in the seraphim are not allowed to burp in the Holy of Holies that we have a basic understanding to say it's probably not appropriate. Okay, With, And there's not a lot of debate that's going to come on the point. There are certain things that lack decorum or a sense of uh, appropriateness. And so when we apply heaven to earth, it translates differently into every culture. And so you could ask me, well, is it appropriate then to burp when you're in Japan? I mean, would Jesus burp when he's in Japan? I think he might, okay? <laughs> However, when, that's when he's in Japan because of the social norms over there. That's actually a statement of respect over there. And respect is the kingdom principle. In other words, respect to show value to others is the kingdom principle. How it plays out in every culture may look a little different, but Jesus is still Jesus in every culture, meaning he's still respectful in every culture. Okay, now that, we could debate that if, if Jesus would burp in Japan after a meal. It's an interesting discussion point. But the point is, I believe that he would be respectful whether he's in Japan or whether he's in Brooklyn. He would still be Jesus. He would still show selfless love to those around him. He would still take the lowest place and serve. Whatever that looks like in the culture to show that, for instance, in some cultures, they take off their hat when they walk into an environment. Other cultures, to wear a hat is a, a sign of respect. In Bulgaria, this means no. Okay, that doesn't mean that if Jesus was in Bulgaria, he would be, you know, saying, you know, this and really confusing everyone because it's like, this always has to mean yes. In that culture, there's a language for how you communicate. And so we as Christians take this pattern of heaven and we bring it to this earth and showcase it in whatever culture we are, and it's constant. It is Jesus Christ in the flesh, in whatever culture, in whatever situation, and there's a pattern for it. When it comes to the notion of Father, there is a major violation of pattern that has taken place in our culture, and most of us have no idea what a correct pattern for a fatherly relationship with the children are or is to be, 
because we've never personally witnessed it. It's very difficult to model something that you've never seen. And a lot of us have a natural reserve towards God as a father simply because we have never seen what the pattern, the correct pattern is supposed to be like. And we assume that the distorted pattern that we grew up around or have witnessed in others or have witnessed on Family Guy or have witnessed on The Simpsons is actually a statement of what it actually is. But that isn't accurate. It is not the pattern as revealed in heaven. And so we as Christians need to come back to something. When it comes to relationships with the opposite sex, there is a heavenly pattern of how it is supposed to be. There is a showcasing of heaven on earth in, relate, in the way a man relates to a woman. As I've, I've used the illustration before whenever I talk about honor, that if some big meanie is coming banging on a door of my house saying, Hey, I want in and I want to hurt someone on the inside. Well, if I hide behind Leslie and say, honey, could you deal with this? I'm going to take the kids and go into the basement. That without any discussion, we all know that there's a violation of something there. I mean, what's wrong with Leslie standing up for our house and being strong? Can't women be strong? Absolutely they can. But in that situation, it is the man's obligation, even scripturally speaking, socially speaking, this is even awkward to think about it, even if we know it's politically, politically incorrect to speak it, a man is responsible for standing up and taking the blow for his bride. And so if there is ever danger, if there is ever harm, it is honor for a man to stand up and be the one to take the blow for his family. He is appointed as a strong one. It doesn't mean his wife can't beat him in an arm wrestle. It means that he is appointed by God to be the first to die. He is the first sufferer. That is the principle as given in Scripture for the manly role. And it has nothing to do with the fact that women are weak, okay, just to clarify. I remember someone telling me about this uh, fighting competition in Brazil where these two, I don't know if they were judo or whatever their uh, martial art uh, skill was in Brazil. I, to be honest, I haven't studied it in some great detail. But they challenged everyone in the world to come and fight them. There are two brothers down there. I don't know if any of you know who that is so that you could help me on what it is. But they invited everyone in the world. Whoever can try and beat us, come to Brazil and we'll fight you. They beat everyone. And then this, I don't know who, the Krav Maga people in Israel caught wind of this, and they sent down their brightest and best, or their, not, I don't want to say brawniest, their best. And one of them was, what, an 87-pound girl? I don't know if you, you seem to know the story. Uh, sent down like an 87-pound girl, and she took the guy down in five seconds, and he was hitting the mat, okay, uh, crying out for, you know, mercy. Okay, so it doesn't mean that a girl can't defend herself. It just means that for a girl to show honor to her man, she allows him to stand for her. It's a matter of principle. Okay, if I wasn't at home, then guess who should stand up and say, kids, into the basement, daddy's taking, or mommy's taking care of this. That, that sounded funny. The, the woman should stand up to defend her family. Absolutely. But if a man is there, she shows respect to her man, and this is part of the pattern, by allowing him to fight for her. Okay, That's just how honor works. In other words, men and women both fight for what's weak. They both fight for the defenseless, but they do it in a way that respects the sexes and the way God designed things. There's a pattern. Fatherhood is so mangled in our culture that we don't recognize what it's supposed to be any more than some of the things I just said. You know, Some of you might even be offended by that. It's like, hey... Uh, Long and short, that's just the way it is scripturally. Jesus, the man, the bridegroom, stood up, took the blow. 
As a result, the bride was able to come up. That doesn't mean he doesn't ask us as the bride to take another blow for those that are weaker than us. But there's an order. A man, have you ever heard it said that a man is an initiator in a relationship? And all the women are like, I don't, that's ridiculous. That's just old-fashioned nonsense. It's actually a biblical idea. A man initiates. A man, one of the reasons a man is the one that, historically is the one that asks the girl to dance, is the one that takes the risk and initiates the relationship. Why? It's actually, it, it has scriptural logic to it. God has built men to take a risk and to stand up and initiate because they are the ones that are stronger to take the rejection. Now, we as guys don't particularly like that. Do you know that we would prefer if girls would be the initiators? It'd make it a lot easier for us. But when we take the initiative, we remove that weight from a girl having to receive that rejection, and we say, we'll take it for you. And we usually do. Uh, <laughs> hopefully none of you identify with that statement. But the point is, there's a pattern, and it's actually based on a Christ model. Okay. Now, I'm saying all that to say there is a pattern for a father. And it is noble. It is honorable, it is powerful, and it is beautiful. And it is something that is lost, and most of us are skittish around the concept of fatherhood because we haven't seen it modeled. Some of our deepest pain comes from the idea of father. Fathers have a way of hurting us deeper than maybe anyone else. I mean, mothers can be thrown in right there too, but fathers... There must be some natural dependence we have upon fatherly strength that when it's not used properly, it wounds us in a deeper way or a deeper level than anyone else can wound us. Isn't that an interesting statement? Just imagine, you know, the things that you've been hurt by your father with, anyone else doing in the world. Eh, you know, it doesn't feel good, but it doesn't injure you at the deepest levels. The words of our fathers sink deeper than the words of other people. You know, if your father tells you that you're ugly, if your father tells you that you're not smart, there's another word for that, but Hudson would have corrected me on it. Uh, it's a bad word in the Ludi home, so I didn't say it. It's S-T-U-P-I-D, okay? That's, a, that's an, uh, a word that's not allowed. So you notice I, I did strategically skip that. Uh, <clears throat> if your father says, you know, you can't sing. I remember hearing this girl. She was told by her father. She had a, actually had a great singing voice, and Somehow the conversation came up. It's like, well, why don't you sing this solo in church? And she said, I can't sing. She had a great singing voice. And it all stems back to the fact that when she was young, she was singing around the house, and her dad was frustrated with something else and took it out of her and said, stop singing, you can't sing. That, those words formed this girl's perception of herself. For some reason, fathers have an ability, a strange ability, to shape our perception of who we are. God has entrusted that to a father. And when a father misuses it, we find ourselves behaving a certain way for the rest of our life. And if someone ever dug down deep into it, we'd say, well, I don't know why I do that, why I think that, why I feel so insecure in these types of situations, why I just think, oh, I can't dance. That's me. Uh, it's because oftentimes we trace it back to things that happened in our life that were shaped from the voice of our fathers to us. So if we recognize that, that we are extra vulnerable at that level, we realize that in the process of being remade by Christ, we have a father in heaven, and he wants to speak a new perception of ourselves to us. 
And if we allow ourselves, just as we have been vulnerable, because we can get mad about this too. I mean, as, as I'm saying all this, you, can, you might be getting mad at your dad. It's like, my dad is messed with my perception. Well, just think what Christianity is though. Christianity is entering under a fatherhood where your God can speak truth to you. And he can eradicate all of those lies, all of those cobwebs, all of those shadowy spots in your existence where you've misconstrued who you were, who you were supposed to be. And you've had all these ideas that you were frail and weak and God comes to you and says, I want to make you strong. And we're like, not me, I can't do that. And he says, listen to me, I'm your father. I made you. I have a design for you. And he's able to blow through all that fog and speak to us those things that we desperately need to hear. But if we never receive him as a father, guess what? We can't hear that. We close off for fear that he will be a father like our previous father. Or he'll be a father like that guy's father over there. I don't want a father like that. Fatherhood is a critical issue. And when it comes into a proper alignment with the idea of heaven, it's amazing how things start to work in our life. Now, let me give you a little background on my dad. I have a great family situation, if you want to say it that way. Uh, I was dealt a very favorable hand. Uh, I, I am tremendously blessed. It doesn't mean my father was perfect. But I do have a high responsibility because of what I was given. Because I know very few people on planet Earth have been given what I was given. But my dad was a workaholic when I was young. And he was just a, a lot of things. He was like the ultimate elder in a church. But he was very driven to provide for his family. You ever seen a dad like that? They're driven to provide, and I didn't know as a kid why I was so frustrated with the fact that my dad was always traveling. But it bothered me. And when you're a kid, you don't know how to articulate your frustration with things. So it usually comes out, you act up. But what I wanted to say, later on in life, I was able to more articulate it and say, Daddy, I wish you wouldn't worry about making money for our family, but that you would just spend time with us. It's like, I don't care if we don't have all these things, because I know that that was his motivation. He wanted to give us things that he didn't have growing up. I think it's, I can understand that motivation as a dad. But it's funny how as a child, you don't care about all the stuff. You actually just want the dad. You just want focus, attention. You want time spent with this father. How do you articulate that when you're a little child? And so there was a certain resident ache within Eric growing up, with a dad that was constantly traveling. My dad and I, my dad used to say that he loved me every night before I went to bed and kiss me, this is going to sound awkward to you guys, but kiss me on the lips. I didn't think that was strange until later in life. I was like, what in the world? <laughs> but the point being, he was an intimate dad. He loved his children and he expressed that. But when you're in the public school system, I'm sure it happens in the Christian school system too and maybe in homeschooling too. I, I only grew up in the public school system. So, but I know that it trained me to push my family away. It's sort of like your family is the problem, is the once uh, shunt in your ability to have popularity. I mean, if you could remove your family and act like you don't have a family, then all things will go well for you at school. And so there's this subconscious pressure or idea that is planted that your family is sort of your downfall 
in, in regards to your reputation. And the further you can distance yourself from that family, the better you'll look. Okay, now it's a terrible lie. It's a great strategy by the enemy because our system of strength and support to make it through that difficult thing called public school is our family. And it's the very thing that the enemy tries to separate us from. Well, my dad began to feel that separation. And I began to awaken to the fact that little, you know, boys shouldn't be kissed on the lips by their dad. And, you know, words of affection, a little awkward. And so I began to push my dad away. When he'd lean in to show affection to me, I would sort of pull away. Well, that made it very awkward for my dad. What does he do? Force a kiss upon me? You know, how do you deal with this? And so I found that my relation with my dad began to become distant. I didn't want it. He didn't want it. But it was almost the natural byproduct of just the awkwardness that comes with certain ages and with the culture being influencing upon my perceptions. And so I found myself pushing my dad away, and we lost all form of communication except for sports. And so we could talk sports, and that was the only thing we did talk about. And so we'd come home from church, turn on the game, and yell and scream at the television, and that was our bonding thing. He would always come to my sporting events, every time. One of my relationships, my love language with my dad was seeing him on the sidelines. And my dad was the greatest fan any boy could ever get. It's my boy! And he'd be yelling, you know, stick Erickin! You know, if you want to win the game, stick Erickin! My dad was so biased towards his son. I mean, if anything ever happened to me, my dad would, you know, crack skulls. And I had many times, because I was sort of a loud mouth on the field. It's like, hey, you know, and yelling at people. I don't know what was wrong. I just, I needed to learn a little more uh, restraint. And, uh, but uh, there were times when I got knocked out uh, because people were mad at me. And my dad, I mean, just fury, you know, rise up to protect his son. Have you ever heard the story about Derek Redmond? In the, what was it, 1992 Olympics, he was a 400-meter guy, and he'd been training his entire life for this one event. And he had had injuries in the past. He had overcome so many obstacles. He, at one point in time, had an injury, and they told him he would never walk again, let, or, let alone run again, let alone compete in the Olympics. The guy had overcome so many obstacles, he makes it to the Olympic Games. There he is, the 400. The gun goes off, and he's running around that track, and he pulls a hamstring. Imagine just how frustrating that is. It was, it was so painful, he actually falls to the, the ground. And he's, he's drinking in the full reality that he's given his life to train for the Olympics. He's overcome all these obstacles, and now he's stopping that short of the finish line, and he'll never know how he measures up. Never know. I mean, as if he's really going to train for another four years to come back to this exact moment. Six hours a day of training. I mean, I can't even imagine. He's... I don't know if any of you have ever seen the, the old video of it, but he's in agony over it. Not just his physical pain, but just agony over the reality that there he is on the track and he's trained and given his life to this. And these people come out to try and help him, and he gets up and starts hopping along. He's going to finish this race. This is long after everyone has passed the line, but he's going to finish this race. He didn't come all the way here to stop short. And so he's hobbling along the track. And strangest thing begins to happen in the crowd. This big guy... It's like pushing people out of the way, and he's making his way down to the track, bursts through the security, and they're like, hey, hey, trying to stop him. And he's like, that's my son. And he runs out onto the track, comes up next to his son. It's one of the most powerful. You have to see it on YouTube. I, I, I saw it on, I searched to see if it was there. It is. Derek Redmond, D-E-R-E-K, Redmond, and it'll, you'll find it. But the dad bursts through, comes up alongside of his son, 
His son puts his arm over his dad's shoulder, leans his entire weight upon his dad, and his dad carries him. And his, the son, Derek, is wailing. I mean, it's, so, it's like he has someone he knows. His dad knew how much he put into this. And it was so powerful. His dad carries him across the finish line. There was this one time where this guy comes out. He's like, you know, you shouldn't be out here. The dad is like, get out of here. <laughs> We're finishing this race. I mean, it's great stuff to see an advocate in a father to say, I know what my son is going through, and I'm going to be right beside him if he ever needs me. Not only is that a great picture of a heavenly father, that was my dad. That is the type of dad I have. And maybe he didn't... My dad was affected by cultural expectations for a father the way any father was. In other words, the church doesn't quite know how to train its men to be more than elders and deacons. It doesn't necessarily understand the pattern for what a father is to be. Ironically, it's like, like I said, 21 father truths. If you look at the, the notes here, there is a pattern. There's 21 key things, and there's probably a lot more, that are obvious things that this is who God is as a father. Well, shouldn't we take the hint and say, well, I guess we probably should expect that an earthly father should model that. That is what a father is to become, is to be, is to express. Well, my dad uh, was... Always sort of the deacon elder, you know, offering passer. You know, the one every group we'd come into is like, well, there's a good solid man, Win Ludi. And my dad would always be the offering passer, and he was always a man of integrity, a man of honor, a man of respect. But he was never a passionate missionary or evangelist for Jesus Christ. You know, you leave that to the professionals. You know, we, we live our Christianity. We don't necessarily talk our Christianity. Well, my dad was turned upside down when I was about 22 years old. His life was turned upside down. And there was, this all happened in this one stretch of time where God was getting a hold of my life, and he was showing me to go back home, because I was traveling all over the world as a missionary, to go back home and honor my dad. So that one of the key first things that God did in my life was send me back to honor my dad. I remember all three of us kids, we all returned home to honor my dad. And my dad had some debt at the time. We all sold our, we had stock in Bank One. My, my uncle was the treasurer of Bank One. Bank One, okay? He was like the treasurer. And it used to be just in Columbus, Ohio. And then it spread all over the country. And guess who had stock? Well, the Looty kids did. We got it every Christmas. And it was worth a lot of money. We gave up all our stock to my dad and cleared his debt. It was an unbelievable thing. My dad, in this time, was being like stirred by God. He went on to, he went to missionary training and he was being awakened at a whole nother level. He came back and I was having a, a moment where I was realizing that my dad hadn't said the words, I love you to me in, uh, you know, 10 years. I knew my dad loved me. I mean, come on. It's about as obvious as you can get. You know, look what he, how he lives towards me. I knew it, but this is one of those weird moments. Okay, I'm like 22 years old. Do I really need to hear it? Okay, I know this is some weird mental gymnastic I'm going through. Does it really matter? Well, for some reason it did to me. I have no idea why. And so I came up to my dad after church one day, all awkwardly, and I said, is, is there any way that... Uh, you could uh, say to me that you love me. 
Okay, not only was it awkward for me, imagine my poor dad, you know? It's just like, <clears throat> uh, you know, it's, it's like Leslie coming to me and saying, could you say I'm beautiful or something? Then I say, you're beautiful. She says, you're only saying that because I told you. It's one of those awkward moments where you, there's no way of handling the situation correctly. So my dad was so awkward because those words are very difficult. Intimate words are difficult to express when you haven't expressed them for a long time. I call it the elevator principle. If you walk into an elevator, you have a certain gap of time when you can address the people around you in the elevator. If you pass that point in time, it is very strange to go, oh, hi. <laughs> that is the same exact principle when it comes to intimate communication. When you're sitting next to that person on the plane, if you do not talk with them in the first 30 to 45 seconds, it becomes nearly impossible to ever bridge unless someone is like passing you a drink. It's like, yeah, here's your drink. Oh, by the way, you know, then you can like do it. But there's moments and you have to take advantage of them. I was not giving my dad a great moment. I was giving him an awkward moment to be able to solve this dilemma of communication with his son. Hey, B, do you need something, buddy? So here we are. My dad is going through this awakening. He doesn't, can't even say it in that moment. It's one of these awkward things to even know how to address. And he doesn't say anything. Imagine how awkward that is. Weeks, months pass. <clears throat> I remember my dad uh, went into this room. It was my sister's old room. And we had one of those IBM computers with a dot matrix printer. And my dad sat there and typed in for like two days. He was typing in something. And he emerges like with one sheet of paper. And he said, Eric, I <clears throat> wanted to uh, sit down and, and talk to you. And he said, could you come into my room? I'd never been invited into his room for a conversation. So I, I come into the room, and he has four chairs set up, <clears throat> a chair for him, a chair for my mom, a chair for a box of Kleenex, and a chair for me. I had never seen my dad cry in my entire life. When it, we would watch sad movies, my dad would sound like Darth Vader. <laughs> but I'd never seen him cry. He'd never shown emotion. As a result, I found that I couldn't cry. Because not that my dad ever said, you can't cry. It's bad for a man to cry. It's that it wasn't, for some reason, appropriate for a man to cry. Because my dad didn't cry. I followed his example of masculinity. So I couldn't cry either. I found myself, I would giggle and laugh in a sad moment. Not because I wanted to, because I had so much emotion and I couldn't express it in, in crying. So I'd be like, <laughs> it was horrible. I mean, it was terrible. And everyone would be looking at me like, how insensitive you are. And I honestly had no other event for my emotions because I wasn't able to cry. It was terrible. And so here I am. My dad has a box of Kleenex. And I'm thinking, what's that for? Uh, and so we sit down, and my dad points at the box of Kleenex and says, that's there uh, because I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it through this. Um, and Eric, I'm going to read this to you because, you know, I, I don't know that I can say it any other way. So I'm like, what in the world is this? Uh, and my dad starts reading, and it's something like, Eric, my son, I love you. Strange, but the power of words, when a father knows how to properly use words of affection, it unlocks a child. It unlocks a child. And he did. 
he spoke words to me that absolutely, I mean, first of all, he started crying at that exact moment. What do you think happened to me? I, uh, I'm an absolute mess, and both of us are like reaching for the Kleenex. I mean, all we did was get through one line, uh, Eric, my son, I love you. And it massively impacted me. And he goes on, and he said things that still to this day have affected me. I still remember, not the exact quotes, but I remember what he said. He, he talked about the fact that God was going to use me as a leader. I was, I, it was nothing. I didn't do anything. I didn't influence anyone. God was going to use me as a leader. That he had given me a voice and an ability to communicate unlike other people have. And he actually had a line. I do remember this line. Your lips are our lives. My dad knew something about my life spiritually, and that is another truth about a father. A father can see deeper than other people in your life. Now, sometimes they don't leverage that well, and they see weaknesses in you, and they have a tendency to pounce on those because they see things in you. But a father can also see strengths, and unfortunately, a lot of fathers keep their mouth shut on them because they don't want to get, have you get a big head. They want to keep you in your place, and if they give you too much encouragement, you might grow too big for your britches. But every child needs to hear their strength. They need to hear what they're being shaped for by God, what they're uniquely qualified to do in this world. And fathers have an ability, an amazing ability given them from heaven to be able to see those things. Well, that day transformed me. I look back on my life and my strength to that. My dad being able to articulate to me what he saw in my life. My dad sticking his hand on my shoulder and blessing my life. My dad sort of sending me off and establishing my manhood. Eric, you're a man. I can think of two key points. In fact, Janet was there for one of them. Uh, when my dad laid his hands on me and prayed a blessing over my masculinity. I don't know too many guys that have had that privilege in their life. That have been sort of sent forth by their father. Now some of you in this room may have because you come from very unique homes. But as a whole, think about our culture. Highly unusual to actually have a dad who can see past all the, your weaknesses and all your immaturity because you're just a young guy and be able to see strength and encourage you forward in it. My dad, when Leslie's and my ministry began to explode, this is like in year one, our ministry was exploding. We had no idea what was going on. We, we had no idea what end was up. We were being asked to travel all over the world. We had so many demands on our time. We didn't know how to facilitate it. We didn't know what was going on. Uh, my dad came up to me and said, Eric, I'm leaving my job and I'm coming to serve you. I'm coming to work for your ministry. My dad left his career to serve us. Now, very few of us probably have ever tasted a father washing our feet. I have. My dad left it all to do that. We had this one moment. We've had some rough spots in our ministry. We had one moment where a man that we brought in to run our events created a whole fraudulent uh, schedule. We spent tens of thousands of dollars on this schedule, whether it was promotional materials or plane tickets. It was all made up. And we lost everything. We had to lay off every single employee we had, which included my dad, who was making 
a pittance, but we still couldn't even pay, and we had to move into Rich and Janet's basement. It was one of the most humiliating seasons of our life. And then we had this one event that was scheduled about six months after that. Well, maybe it was about four months after that. And it was, it was a huge event, you know, 1,500 to 1,500 to 2,000 people in a, in a huge uh, opera house, and uh, a very, very powerful event, and it was going to basically enable us to keep going financially. In the process, in the middle of the event, someone had taken all the money that was going to be directed towards our ministry and directed it into their business. And that's a long story to tell you how that happened. But long and short, we were sabotaged, even in that. And my dad, the man had come up to my dad, who was the one in the key decision for it, and told him that Eric had told him that this is what's supposed to happen. And my dad said, well, that doesn't make any sense, but if Eric said it, I guess that's what should happen. And so my dad felt culpable. He felt responsible. I still remember the time, the day I was sitting in a Wendy's parking lot, after this event, my dad's head right here and above his head was a little Wendy's sign. That's why I know it was Wendy's because I, I see this picture with my dad with a little Wendy's sign above his head. And he had just shared with me what had happened. And he saw my face saying, that, w that wasn't supposed to happen. So my dad is absorbing all of this, realizing that his son is not just on the ground, but he's being kicked on the ground. Now my dad sort of feels like his boot is one of the ones kicking me. It was an extremely important moment, father to son, for him to realize he had, it wasn't his fault. He was honoring me by saying, Eric, if you ever told someone that they could do this, even if it doesn't make sense to me, I'll, I'll follow through with that and I'll stand with you. That's what he was thinking. It's like, if you want to give money to these people, you can and I'll, I'll back you up. But I remember he said this. He said, Eric, if you go down, I'm going down with you. My dad was willing to identify with me in my weakest moments. I am very happy about the dad that I've been given. And I don't go through these stories as a means of saying, hey, you don't have a dad like mine. Ha ha. It's to make sure I never forget that I've been given something and I never want it to be belittled in my mind. Because we have a tendency to look at human relationships and evaluate them based on a standard of perfection. And if they aren't perfect, then we have a tendency to critique them and find fault with them and diminish the true stature of who they are in our life. And my dad has stature in my life, and he deserves commendation. He, he deserves my applause. He deserves my appreciation. I have a picture of fatherhood in my life because of my dad. That is one of the key elements of why I have this. So I wanted to share that with you as I'm going into this to realize this is a very deep thing for me. I know that not all of you have the same luxury in your life to say that, yes, I have a father that has done that for me. But here's what I want you to know. The pattern for fatherhood is not altered simply because you have not experienced that. And the fact that there is a Father in heaven that wants to stand in that empty gap in your life and be an intercessor to stand and make up the hedge for you and be all the Father that you need is still true. Because God is a Father to the fatherless. Or he, we could say this. He is the perfect Father to make up 
for those of us that don't have the perfect father. He will always be that. That is a guarantee from heaven to you that whatever you have missed in that translation of fatherhood or that, that gap that you have in your life, that everyone needs a father. It just is a truth. We have a, a huge breach in our existence the moment we lose a father. We do. It doesn't mean God just throws us out with the trash and says, yeah, you know, you don't have that now. Every orphan would no longer have a hope. And all of us, you know how many dysfunctional families there are in this country that don't have a father? Or don't have a, a father that is filling that gap the way Christ would want them to? It is such a massive problem in this culture. All of us would be sunk. There would be no hope for us. But the gospel is good news. Which means God wants to come in and intercede for us in that exact situation. And be strong where we've been vulnerable. Make up that breach and become a father to us. And all those things I just mentioned, if you want a dad who will run out onto that track, push everyone out of the way and say, I'm here for my son, I'm here for my daughter, you have it in spades with God. If you want a dad who will speak truth to you and alter your perception to fit reality, if you've been hearing all this junk about your life, all these problems that you have, all these ridiculous things about you, you'll amount to nothing. And you have been under the burden of that for your entire existence. It's time you come to your heavenly father, sit on his lap, and allow him to speak to you. Because he will eradicate all of those lies. And he will build truth right where there has been lies. He will reestablish you. He will fortify you in truth and in reality. There is not one of you here that is outside of the pale of God's acceptance, outside the pale of God's favor, and outside the pale of who God wants on his lap to speak love, strength, and valiance to. He wants to give you courage for the calling that you've received. Many of us think that great Christianity can only be lived by those that have a certain stability of soul because we feel weak, and that weakness is oftentimes inherently there and passed on from our family. We've never felt like we could ever do anything. And as a result, we never rise up and say, God, use me. Use me. Because we feel inferior to the task, which is not always bad. Because those that oftentimes stand up and say, God, use me, we think that we're usable. When in actuality, you're probably part of the problem. It's like Moses saying, I'm ready to deliver my people. And God says, we need 40 years on the backside of the wilderness before we're ready with you. And then Moses is like, I am worth nothing. And God says, now you're ready. In other words, there's a certain disposition and deportment of soul which says, God, I can't do anything without you. And God says, now you're ready. But there's also an understanding that God is able in and through you as a weak vessel. And that is the key of understanding the importance of fatherhood. That God says, I want to use you. And you say, I, I'm nothing, God. And he says, I am something. And if you will yield your body to me, I will do it in and through you. That's a father. He will carry us, and we can lean on him the whole track, and we will finish that race. Okay, let's go through the 21 father truths. Now, there's loads of scriptures. I think father is used 1,210 times in scripture. And I challenge you to find other words in scripture used at that level. You have to skip and. Okay, that doesn't count. But there are very few words in scripture that would rank that high. Okay, in fact, I don't know if there's any other. Maybe Lord uh, would be another one that could rival Father. But this is 
replete throughout Scripture. And that's a very important point to realize. We take it for granted that Father is throughout Scripture. But it's God who refers to himself as Father. You need to realize that. This isn't us with wishful thinking saying, I wish our God could be as a Father as opposed to a mean dictator up in heaven. Most religions on planet Earth do not understand the fatherhood of God. And if they do associate fatherhood with God, they have a warped idea of fatherhood. And so it isn't that good of news. But when you understand that God defines who a father is, and then he says, and I am that to you, this is extraordinary news. He so loves, number one, and you notice I emphasized so, he so loves. He doesn't just love. He so loves. He loves to such a degree that he is moved to action. He is moved that when he sees you down on that track, he will barrel through all obstacles and come to your rescue and aid. That is exactly what it says in Scripture in John 3.16. I know we're used to John 3.16, but that's actually what it says. That he so loves that he moves through all barriers to come to your aid. That is your father. He has suffered immeasurably in order to offer us life. He doesn't care what the barrier is. He doesn't matter what it is even going to cost him to come. But he loves so much that he has moved to action. This is the heavenly pattern for your father in heaven. This is who he is. You cannot redefine him through your experience. He still remains this way. He so loves and he has moved and he has suffered immeasurably in order to offer us life. And he wishes none to perish. That's an extraordinary statement. So here's a couple scriptures. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. That is the heart of your father. He aches to see all men. He aches to see all of us as his children come into an understanding of who he is as a father, without exception. Four, to us that believe, he gives us his very name and calls us sons and daughters. This is something that we can so easily take for granted. Many of us have heard these truths or understood the doctrinal idea of these things, but we fail to ever receive them personally. There are certain people that if, if they're ever in those moments of ministry and someone comes up to them and says, I just feel that you need to know that God loves you, they'll just break down and start weeping. This is someone who knows it doctrinally that God loves them. Why is it so important for them to hear the words straight from heaven to them that God loves them? Because for some reason we resist this truth even though we know it intellectually. That God loves us as individuals. He has selected us. He wants to know us as individuals. We can know it doctrinally, but can we receive that? Because it's the reception of it that changes us. It's the fact that we do believe that God does love us as individuals. So think about that for you. That John 3.16 is for you. He so loved you that he gave up his life. He sacrificed immeasurable pain, separation from God. He took the full blow and the brunt of everything so that he could get to you and offer you life. He broke through every barrier to reach you. And that love has not been diminished because he did that. 
it is still solid and constant. The same love that moved him then moves him to awaken you now to say that love is for you now. It's the same love. It was not diminished with time. It was not God didn't just die on the cross, rise from the dead and say, whew, I'm glad I got that love out of the way. He still loves. It's constant. He is love. He is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means that same love that moved him to action then is the same love that moves him to action now. And he still cares about you with the same intensity that led him to give up his life. So 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knows us not, because it knew not him. This is the manner of love, that we would be called the sons. Most of us know this intellectually, but we fail to realize that he doesn't just set us free from the prison of our sin and the penalty of our sin. He delivers us from the root problem of it, sets us free to live an abundant existence, but not outside of him. Now think about this. If we were set free from our sin, and God was just like, well, I've done my work down there, and now just go and live a good life. I've given you everything you need for life and godliness, okay? And he's like, I'm going to be up here on my throne, enjoying all the seraphim and the angelic host and the cherubim around me, singing good songs to me. You do your thing down there, and if you do it right, you can get up here to be with me and hear the songs I'm hearing. But God is still interested in the intimate details. And he says, behold the manner of love that this father has for you. That he desires to call you sons and daughters. That he wants to bring you into the intimate dwelling of his existence. When I have a son or a daughter, they share in my intimate life. They're a part of my existence. I don't want them somewhere else. I want them where I am. That is the privilege of being a son or a daughter. A son or a daughter has access. You ever heard that story about John F. Kennedy? That there is a little, uh, is it John F. Kennedy Jr.? Is it, was that his name? Little Johnny uh, Jr. is sitting under his dad's desk playing with some truck in the middle of one of the most important uh, meetings in the White House, in the Oval Office. And little Johnny's just down there zooming his car around. We get the privilege! of being invited into the Oval Office, if you will, the Holy of Holies, and just zooming our truck around. And God says, you're welcome here. We have no business being there. This is the privilege of a son and a daughter. We have no idea what we're doing. Do we know anything about all the eternals and all the heavenlies and all the plans of God? We have no clue. We try and act like we do. It's like, oh yeah, God's up to this, and he will do this in the future. We don't know what we're talking about. He knows what he's doing, and he's dealing with it all, and we're zooming trucks around. We just have the privilege of being where he is. He is a protector of the weak and a father to the fatherless. Six, he is full of grace and truth. He is a comforter, a helper to those in need. Now I want you to realize this is the pattern for the nature of him as a father. He is a comforter, a helper to those in need. He is compassionate and effusive in his expressions of love. Now, I'll read this scripture because it's just so amazing to see that this is actually Jesus talking about a father. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now, some of you have already heard that in the Oriental culture, it was undignified to run. 
But Jesus is making a statement in this culture saying this father loved his son so much. Now this is talking about the prodigal. The prodigal son that went off, spent his inheritance, was you know, wallowing in the mud with pigs. But he awakens and realizes that even being a servant in his father's house would be better than this. This is miserable. But how is his father going to receive him back? What is the nature of this father? Jesus is saying, you want to know what the nature of this father is? This father is constantly watching. He is alert to where you're at. He's wanting to know when you're going to return. He cares about you. And when he sees you afar off, he will throw all dignity to the wind and run to you. And when he comes to you, he will fall upon you and kiss you. That is your father. That is Jesus' template that he's giving, saying this is how your heavenly father is responding to you. That's extraordinary. It's not my opinion saying, I'd really like God to be like this. And so I come up with a story, and all of you are like, yeah, it'd be nice if he was, but I don't think he is. I'm saying this is Jesus saying it. And if Jesus says it, take it to the bank. This is who your God is. He gives us what we deserve. Sorry. (laughs) He does not give us what we deserve, but rather he supplies us with the bounty of his kingdom. This is actually the nature of our God. If we gave our children just what they deserve, they, they just don't know what they're doing most of the time. We give them discipline to correct what they're doing, but we do not throw them out because they're not perfect. God has given us grace. He has given us his righteousness to clothe us so that we can, even as unfinished projects, still walk in the privilege of being sons and daughters of the king. We have no business functioning under the banner of sons and daughters of the king because you have to be perfect to do that, to enter into the presence of God, to live in the presence of God, to zoom your truck around the Oval Office of Heaven. You have to be perfect. That's the prescription of the Old Testament. You, it demands perfect concordance with the Ten Commandments and all righteousness. But Jesus Christ has come and made a way and he's clothed us and invited us in. And then he says, open up this treasure chest and I will work real righteousness within you. So that actually the nature, the disposition and deportment of Jesus Christ can actually begin to be fleshed out in us as we're clothed in his righteousness the whole time so that we can enjoy the intimacy of heaven at the same time be made into heaven on the inside. It's an extraordinary plan. It's an amazing thing, but it's because of the nature of our Father that we can enjoy this. Because if he didn't have this nature, he'd say, okay, I give you one minute. Prove yourself. Prove perfect righteousness. I gave you my blood. I shed it on the cross. You better perform right now. You're out. He is long-suffering with us. He's come up with a plan that that figures in our weakness. He knows where we're at. And he wants to see us succeed. And if it comes to our raw grit and determination, we're still going to fail. So he's come up with a plan that meets us where we're at and then carries us the entire distance. That's a father. He's the giver of good and perfect gifts. He's the one that gives the good gifts. Not the one that's giving you disaster He's the one that's giving you the good gifts. That's who he is. He does not change, but rather is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so both of those, I have one scripture in James. Every good and perfect, every perfect gift is from above. And comes down from the Father of lights, which 
in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. When you turn and you're casting a shadow, your shadow changes as well. But God is casting a shadow, if you will. His magnificent presence, and we can see where he is. And there is no variance to that. He is constant. He is un- so when we learn these things about God, and you could say, well, he might be that way today, but we don't know. I mean, he might come up with you know, an attitude tomorrow and decide to change all this. He is unable to change this. Why? As it says in Hebrews, because he cannot lie and he has promised. He cannot lie and he promised. He's promised himself to not change. He's promised that there in him is no variance. He's promised that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So you can hold him with a legal binding to say, God, you cannot vary. You cannot because you promised and you cannot lie. Therefore, we can hold him to his nature. Even legally, we can. We have a legal position on God to hold him to his promises. He cannot adjust himself. He must behave this way for all of eternity. He's promised. He gave his word. And he keeps his word. He doesn't merely listen to prayer, but answers it. You know that God is defined throughout Scripture as not one that just entertains prayer. He goes, hmm, interesting. What do you have to say? Hmm. Oh, how about you? Any prayer that is given in the name of his Son is given in the authoritative position that is, that is vested in Jesus Christ. Any prayer that is in alignment with the will of God is expressed in Scripture. Any prayer that is born of the Spirit and not of the flesh, God doesn't just entertain it. He answers it. That is his nature. And he has bound himself to that. Why God binds himself, he should have just given us a little pamphlet with just a few details. And then he could say, that's all you can hold me to so that I have some room to maneuver. God has limited his room to maneuver. He doesn't want room to maneuver. He wants us to know who he is in every intimate way. And he wants to say, you can trust this, you can trust this, you can trust this, you can trust this, and you can trust this. I am a rock. Build your life upon me. I will not be shifting sand beneath you. I am solid and stable, and I've promised you this. When you pray in accordance with my will, my word, my pattern, out of the spirit and not out of the flesh, with my nature, in accordance with my promises as revealed in Scripture, it is as good as done. Whatsoever you ask within that realm will be given to you. I do not sit up here and decide as some arbitrator going, you know what? This person's been asking a lot of big prayers lately. They have their limit. You know that you can ask as many big prayers as you want and there is no limit? God doesn't get fed up with our prayers. Isn't that an interesting thought? We get fed up with people. God doesn't get fed up with us. He's the one saying, go to, the, go to my house and knock. And keep knocking. For some reason, God doesn't get irritated with our knocking. Gink, 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 gink. Uh, God, <clears throat> you told me to do this. Gink, 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 gink. Until we open up, he says, that's what I'm looking for. That's the type of faith I'm looking for. The Syrophoenician woman, she's seemingly bothering Jesus. And Jesus is even seemingly ignoring her. You know, I didn't come for you. I came for the people of Israel. And she's like, well, even the dogs can eat the crumbs from the king's table. And he says, hmm, you know what? We need more faith like this in Israel. You have what you asked for. That is his nature, even if it seems like he's not going to answer. He's probably testing your faith. 
says, keep asking. Do you know my nature? Because you can hold me to it. He doesn't give a stone when we ask for bread, a serpent when we seek a fish. Again, a very critical thing because a lot of us have confused the nature of God with the nature of Satan. Because that's what Satan does. The goal of Satan is to intersect our life when we're seeking after the truth of Jesus Christ and to plant a bomb in the middle of it. A little hand grenade goes off. And then he says, can you believe God did that to you? That's us going after a fish and getting a serpent. And we're trying to figure out, it's like, whoa, what's wrong with God's nature here? Why would he do that? That wasn't God. That's the enemy attempting to be the enemy and blame it on God. We need to be able to decipher the difference, that God is stable and he is the same. Now, God doesn't mind us being disciplined. He doesn't mind us facing trials. He doesn't mind a lot of things that we do mind. But it's all to build us more like him, stronger, more joyful, more peaceful. It's not to diminish that and to go the opposite direction. It's to establish us. If anything is eroding our foundation in Jesus Christ, that isn't coming from God. Everything God brings into our life fortifies us in the life of Christ. Even the hardest things, they fortify us and make us stronger. <sighs> 14 through 21. I'm just going to go through these. Uh, some, I, I didn't write any scriptures for these. Obviously, I was trying to fit this on two pages. Usually, I'm trying one. This is an impossible one to do on one page. He tests and trains. He disciplines. But look at this. Key point. He does not abuse. We have this whole outcry against corporal punishment in our culture. But corporal punishment and the outcry against corporal punishment has to do with the fact that people don't know how to utilize. I don't even like the word corporal. Terrible word. Uh, proper biblical discipline. How about we just call it that? But a lot of Christians don't know how to properly utilize that. And as a result, in many cases, it may be abusive or a response or retaliation out of anger. Because that's what we could call it. Now, you might be doing the right thing to the rear end of your child, technically, biblically speaking. But it might not be done in the right attitude. And if it's not done in the right attitude, did you know that it's actually harmful? It is. And I would agree that that is probably not appropriate. However, we have such a problem in our culture with this to the point where now we have massive restrictions. If you try and uh, adopt through Bethany Christian Services, they actually have you sign something that says you can never spank your child. Well, that is not their place to say, yeah, you cannot do what the Bible tells you to do. The thing is, proper discipline is not abuse. It is born out of love for your child, and it only does what is necessary to correct and drive out that rebellion. Nothing more. I do not tie one of my children out onto the street and penalize in the beyond in some terror-stricken situation. A car's coming. Yeah, and you're going to learn not to spill your milk. That is abuse. That isn't the nature of God. God only, he disciplines, but he only does it to the level of need. He does the correction and then returns us into an enfolding embrace. Only what is necessary. He punishes, he does not persecute. He gives the very best to us. His every motive in our lives is love. Hold on to that and never let it go. His every motive in our life is love. He has no delight in seeing us go through any difficulty that isn't an extension of his love. He loves us too much to leave us the way we are. So he's willing to walk us through whatever is necessary. 
Hudson knows that daddy does not enjoy discipline. I don't enjoy it. He doesn't enjoy it. We're both in that together. But daddy disciplines Hudson because daddy loves Hudson. That's the principle. That's how it works. It doesn't mean that Hudson has to say, I enjoyed that daddy. But he knows daddy's heart in administering it. And that's the key. We need to know God's heart in administering his discipline to us. If he convicts us that we don't look at him and say, you know what? I don't like feeling guilt. He says, Eric, I'm allowing you to feel this guilt because I love you. And I want to correct that so you don't need to do this again. It's because I love you that I allow you to feel that sting of pain. Please, Eric, let me correct that in you. Let me in. He takes no pleasure in seeing us oppressed. He extends a season of difficulty no longer than is absolutely necessary. He loves to see his children healthy and strong, laughing and playing. One of those interesting mental pictures is as a father, we have this idea that God loves to see, he's stern. And so everything he wants from us is some stern thing. It's an extension of sternness. And so if we giggle, if we laugh, if we, you know, do something that, well, found some joy in that. That was, that was nice. God's like, Ugh. you are not allowed to laugh, buster. That is not the nature of God. God, just like a father, delights to see his children delight. A child, it might not seem that important on planet Earth for a child to zoom around a, a truck, to play in a sandbox and dig a hole. To imagine, it's like, if I dig this hole, I could build, you know, maybe get to China. I, that's what I did, and I'm sure Hudson's going to do that too. Daddy, well, I'm sure, say, yeah, if you keep digging, you might get to China. And so a little boy delights in doing that, and the father looks out through the window of the home, and it might not be that important, okay? And it, it might teach him discipline and hard work ethics. I'm sure there's some value that could come. But the little boy is delighting himself. His imagination is flowing. And as a father, I have a delight in seeing my son delight. That's the way God is. It doesn't mean he wants us spending our, our time on frivolous things. No. But he doesn't, he delights in seeing us delight. How about I just say it that way? He delights in seeing us delight. He loves to see us singing. He loves us to have a song in our heart. And many of us think that God likes us to have a dirge in our heart. But God loves us to chirp like birds. He likes to see us have a little uh, spring in our step. I can't dance, so don't judge my dancing. He loves to see us delight. The word ob, it's the most basic labial sound an infant can make. Some of you have heard me say this before. But it's the most basic human sound. Ob, 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 ob. Little baby. And so God names himself after that. It's supposed to be the first sound of our new birth. It's a spirit within us crying out, Ub, Ub. There's new life and we recognize a father. That's beautiful. And this is the first word in the Hebrew language. It's the first word. It's the cornerstone of the entire construct of God of theology, of everything God is, it flows out of the fact that he is Ab. As an infant crying out to our God saying, could you be this? <laughs> this is who I need. And he says, that's exactly who I am. 
I will meet your every need at the deepest level because I love you. That's extraordinary. And that's, for some reason, obscured in Christianity. We should be the bearers of it. We should be the ones proclaiming this from the rooftops. This is your God. Who wouldn't want to know him? The attributes of his fatherhood are first, highest, and preeminent. His fatherly attributes define all his other attributes. All other attributes fall within the pale of his fatherhood. Everything about God springs forth from his fatherhood. Think about this. Creation. He gave rise. He gave creation. It came out of his fatherhood. Humanity. He birthed humanity. Israel. Israel flowed out of God, out of his side, if you will. Jesus, his, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The gospel, it's a rise out of his fatherly love and affection for his people. He gave them good news. The church. This is all a result of him being a father. It starts with him being a father. And if you can understand it correctly, you must understand him as a father. If you skip that, if you remove that out, if you parse out and you say, I just want him to be a king. I just want him to be powerful. Because I already feel like he's distant. So let's just give him a powerful disposition and I'll say, he can save me. I know my king can rescue me. It sounds nice and it is true, but it's not intimate. Intimacy demands the fatherhood of God. You can say, well, I'll just take him as a bridegroom. Well, it's somewhat difficult for some of us guys. Fatherhood is universally understood. God wants us to understand him as a father. This is more just a summary statement. Jesus is the father expressed, the father made flesh. Jesus did nothing but what the father did, spoke nothing but what the father spoke. If you're attracted to Jesus, you're attracted to the father. This is who he is. This is what he was, who he will be. This is your father. Jesus perfectly enunciated his nature, his heart. He laid down his life for us. That's your father. The believer. The believer, just like Jesus is the father expressed, the believer is Jesus expressed. Jesus made flesh. The believer does nothing but what the Spirit of Christ does, speaks nothing but what the Spirit of Christ speaks. So if you were to create a syllogism, that might be too big of a word, but it's a logical flow. Jesus is the expression of the Father. So here we have the Father, and Jesus expresses the Father, and then a believer expresses Jesus, which means in a logical flow that a believer is expressing the nature of the Father. So if you don't understand what the pattern of fatherhood is, you may not be expressing it correctly. This is critical because a believer's ultimate testimony, we give our glory and, and praise and adoration to Jesus Christ, and then Jesus Christ hands it over to the Father. This is all about a father. It all comes down to that. Jesus himself says, in tribute to my father, we pay tribute to Jesus Christ. We make it all about Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is an expression of the Father. We are meant to be a tribute to that nature on earth. And yes, as fathers, we should be as that. We should be as God is. And we will fall short, absolutely. I'm glad he makes up the difference. But at least we have a standard and we say, I want to be like that. I want to love my children like that. I esteem that. I want that. And if you have a missing piece in your life and you have never had a father like that, you do now.
It's the difference of making one mental little decision to say, you know what, I refuse to accept the diminishment of God as a father in my life. I'm going to come straight to him and say, God, be all of that to me. Be all that you promised to be to me. Speak to me where I have been lied to and make me strong. May I know truth so I'm not living in accordance with lies. God, I have never known human touch at the level that could meet my need. I am a needy person. I don't want to be a needy person, but somehow I need the affection of my father. I was never sat on my father's lap. I never received his embrace. God, I don't like being this way. And he'll say, come up on my lap then, and I will meet that need within you. He can meet every need that is missing in the human level. God doesn't intend for you have to, to not have that at the human level. That's just the truth. Any more than he intends for an orphan to be the case. He doesn't intend for any child to not have parents. That isn't his pattern. He doesn't intend a, a mom to be a single mom. That isn't his intent. But say it is as because of the warping of sin in this world. That is where you're at. It doesn't mean you are left handicapped without a hope. No matter where you are, God can meet that need. He can fill in that blank. He can be that intercessor, that strong man to stand in the gap just for you. That is extraordinary news. And that is the news we can boast of as Christians. But first, let's know it intimately ourselves so that we can properly testify of the fact that God is this to me. God is a father to me. When you understand that God is a father to you, you can help others understand how he can be a father to them. Holy Father, we love you. Lord, for those of us that have been estranged from you as a father, I pray that you complete that within us and you draw us unto yourself and you let us know that it's safe. It's safe to allow you to be our father, that you will not be a father that disappoints. You will not be a father that's too busy. You will not be a father that is harsh. You will not be a father that's abusive. You will be all that we've talked about tonight. You will be a father that's gentle, that's kind, that's patient, that's persevering, that's courageous on our behalf, that's an advocate for us when we're weak. You are the perfect father. Lord Jesus, introduce us to the father in that way. Please, Lord, bring us into that intimate place. Help us to cry out from within Abba, the most intimate name for Papa and Daddy. Lord, that we would know you in such a way and that you would change us and transform us. And that the voice of our soul would cry out how much we love you in that position in our life. That is the sign of the new birth. Lord Jesus, I pray that that be the sign in every soul here tonight. We love you. Praise you. And adore you. It's in the precious name of our King that we pray this. Amen.